everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to let you know about a very special opportunity. We have partnered with the Kentucky Heritage Council to put on a Strong Towns Conference September 24th and 25th in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the conference is a, is a day and a half of intensive Strong Towns uh, immersion. Uh, I'm going to be there. Jim Kuman will be there. John Anderson will be there. Uh, we're going to be uh, getting into depth in, in a, a lot of the stuff that, that we have put together over the years. You're going to get in person and uh, you're going to have a lot of time for interaction with, with all of us. Uh, the registration is embarrassingly low. It's just 25 bucks for the entire event. Uh, the, the Heritage Council uh, and the Kentucky Main Street Program, Preservation Kentucky, Preservation Louisville, uh, these places have all pitched in to get the cost down to hardly anything. If you can get yourself to Kentucky, if you can get yourself to Louisville for those days, uh, it's going to be a great, great time. Uh, we're not having a national gathering this year. That was kind of a, a, a one-time event and, and uh, was not really about sharing information as much as getting people together. Uh, this is really as close to a Strong Towns conference as we're going to get in 2015. And so uh, go to our website. We've got all the information there. If you go to strongtowns.org, click on events, uh, scroll down to you find Louisville in uh, September 24th and 25th. Uh, get signed up there. It's got the uh, hotel information, the agenda, conference stuff, and, and, and of course, a registration link. Uh, try to attend and uh, bring a friend. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. I try not to talk about climate change very often. <laughs> I, I certainly, I, I know I have a couple times on the show, but uh, not very often. And I certainly don't write about it on the blog. And the, the, the couple times that I've had, I've had these massive, massive disclaimers that go along with it because I'm, I'm well aware that uh, my opinions, if we want to, yeah, my opinions, my, my view uh, on on climate, what is known in the political arena as the climate change debate, uh, my views are essentially offensive to everybody, right? I, I know that when you get into the political sphere where climate change has been, you know, radicalized uh, left and right, in terms of the political discourse we have in this country, pretty much everybody finds something that they absolutely hate about what I've got to say about climate change. And so I, I rarely, rarely talk. I just avoid it. And I avoid it because it's it's not essential. My views on climate change are not essential to understanding the Strong Towns message and to uh, be able to, you know, have a conversation about the economics of our place and the finances of cities and, and why our cities are going broke and infrastructure and, and you know, all the various offshoots that come out of having a dialogue on how we build strong towns, great communities, places where people want to live. I'm going to bring up climate change now because I want to this week in the podcast just make one overarching point. And, and I think the place that I need to start with is climate change in order to do this. And 
what I really want to do is, is help you, regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum or, or how you generally approach issues, to maybe think a little bit differently about something that not climate change. But I'm going to start with there because I, I, I want to... I want to kind of sucker you in, right? I want to, I want to, I want to feed this up to you. So, let's talk a little bit about climate change. There's a really great book, and here I'm going to go quoting another book, and I don't have the name of it here, so I can't give it to you. It's the uh, the president's uh, something something on climate change. It it was recommended to be my one of you a few uh, a few years ago, and I read it, and it's it's absolutely uh, fantastic. All right. It's called Energy for Future Presidents, The Science Behind the Headlines. Uh, and it, it was a really, really good book. It, it went through the whole climate change conversation and it, I, I think, explained things in a way that I was comfortable with. It, it split people up into a, a number of camps. And I'm going to kind of talk about the two extremes. The, the one extreme was what he called climate deniers, people who say that the climate is not changing. Uh, man has zero capacity to change or impact the climate. Nothing we do or have ever done will ever impact the overall climate. Uh, get over it. And the far other side uh, essentially says the exact opposite, that you know, by there being a single human being who breathes on this earth, we have impacted the climate in a negative way. And uh, without us being here, you know, every additional human, every additional output, every additional thing has a, a negative, you know, only negative impacts on the climate. There's nothing positive whatsoever that that could possibly happen. And so essentially mankind is the problem. If If we take those two very extreme views and, and, and push them off to the side and just look at people who are maybe a, a, a little bit more practical in their thinking. Uh, you have what he called uh, something like a, a climate skeptic or a, 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 a someone who believes that the climate changes and believes that, you know, I mean, I, to me, this is an irrefutable thing. You look back over time and the dinosaurs, the climate was much greater. I live in Minnesota. We were at one point covered under two miles of glacier. Uh, obviously, the climate has changed over time. Uh, the, the This line of thinking kind of breaks down when we get to uh, drawing direct correlations between certain levels of CO2 output and certain levels of, of change in the overall trajectory of the climate. There's another uh, viewpoint that, that kind of is – I won't say is the opposite of this because it's not on a, on a far extreme, but it is a viewpoint that says – we can look at with some degree of scientific rigor and we can model and project and we can do research and correlate levels of CO2 with levels of temperature and we can take this system and essentially project out and, and have a real clear understanding of what impacts humans are having and will have on the climate and what the results of that will be in the future. Right now, we have this weird debate in our country, uh, not necessarily over that, although that's what the debate kind of centers around. But the debate is really, what should we do? You know, what, what, what are the pragmatic steps that a society would take, understanding that over time, the, the climate changes? I think Jim Kunstler actually described this in a way in his last book. 
or in the long emergency. I think he described it in a way that I was most comfortable with. He talked about climate weirding, uh, the fact that the climate becomes essentially unpredictable, that when we start putting high levels of carbon dioxide in the air, we burn off all these fossil fuels, uh, we're changing a very complex system. And the end results we get are weird. Uh, they're not necessarily predictable in any way. And, and I'm actually comfortable with that. You know, I, I, I get kind of uh, crazy when I hear people, you know, when there's a, a hurricane, they'll say, well, oh my gosh, it's climate change. Or when there's a, a flood, they'll say, well, obviously, you know, we're impacting the environment and it's causing this. Those are just silly things because we obviously had hurricanes and we had floods. And, and the absence of hurricanes and floods d- does not necessarily mean uh, that the climate is not changing, right? It's the, the, the corollary of that. I, I find those kind of day-to-day observations to be absolutely absurd. But what I want to talk about in this debate is is the, the notion that if we take as a given that the climate is changing, regardless of, of what you think the cause is, I want to talk a little bit about the reaction to that, to one very specific proposal. Now, Maybe I should uh, not start there because, like I said, I I think we can all agree, at least if you're listening to this podcast, you probably will agree that the climate changes over time. I mean, I said we used to be under two miles of of ice here in Minnesota. We also had dinosaurs who used to walk here. Obviously, if we go back in time in history, the climate has changed. I, I don't really think that's a debatable thing. And I think that without humans here and without burning fossil fuels, the climate would continue to change in ways that are unpredictable, right? Obviously, we have uh, created other variables within this complex system that are, you know, whether it is a tiny bit or a lot, are going to impact that trajectory, that change, uh, in ways that are essentially unpredictable. A few years ago, the guys at Freakonomics, and I, and if you don't listen to the Freakonomics podcast, you should. It's a lot of fun. But the guys at Freakonomics put out a book, and I, I think it was the like more Freakonomics or Super Freakonomics. Here I am quoting another book, and I don't have the name of it. I, I just I read way too much. Uh, but in this book, um, one of the things that they talked about was the fact that there was really no way. And I, I'm I'm choosing my words carefully here because I don't want to put words in their mouth, and I don't want to I don't want to dwell on climate change. So I'm not trying to tick all of you off. Um, but essentially, they they made the case that there was no real policy way that we were going to do the things that would need to do to lower carbon dioxide emissions uh, substantially to to levels that would make a, a huge impact. Um, you know, different treaties that we've signed, different steps that we've taken have gotten us back to, you know, levels we were at in the 90s or what have you. And, and there's been some progress in certain nations, but worldwide, uh, you know, carbon emissions have been on an upward trajectory. There's a strong correlation between carbon emissions and, uh, and, and economic prosperity. The idea that you would cut emissions uh, to developing countries and third world countries. And I'm getting way too deep in the weeds here. And there's a lot of you that are yelling at me now because you have some theoretical plan that's going to work and make everything right. And, you know, it, their argument in the book was that the likelihood of this happening 
because the problem is so slowly accumulating and so far into the future. And what would take to deal with it would be so dramatic that the likelihood of it happening was, was very small, whether it should or not is politically very small and very difficult. Okay. What they suggested in the Freakonomics book and were roundly criticized by environmentalists all over the place was that uh, they they highlighted some science and some research uh, that suggested that if the climate did go up to the point where it was having a dramatic impact on our ability to grow foods, our ability to inhabit certain areas, um, that we could essentially pump an aerosol into the air, uh, essentially like dust particles, and cool the earth. We've seen this happen. I remember when, uh, I think it was Mount Pinatubo erupted uh, in Japan. We had like the coldest summer we've ever had here in Minnesota. It never got over 85 degrees. It was overcast the whole summer. They kept telling us that it was because of the mountain, uh, particles in the atmosphere reflecting the sunlight. I I, I don't know if these things are true. Um, But, you know, scientifically... These guys were, were suggesting that, hey, if this got bad, there's an, there's an easy remedy for this. We could, we could take this approach and, and deal with it. And I get the reaction, and I actually agree with the reaction, but it was fascinating to me because what you had, and, and largely this was an argument that I've heard now picked up amongst the, the political wing that – that that does not think climate change is a problem or an imminent problem, uh, they will suggest that, well, you know, if it, if it is a problem, we've got this kind of cheap, easy way to mitigate it. We just pump this aerosol into the air. And the thing that I found interesting about the reaction from the other side of essentially the political spectrum was that, you know, and largely they were right on. They were saying, look, you don't know what the effects of that are going to be. You don't know what impact that's going to create. We're pumping all this carbon in the air right now and, 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 you know, kind of, kind of can project out all these bad, terrible things that we think are going to happen. But boy, you start messing with uh, a complex natural system. You start thinking you can control a complex system by pumping, you know, aerosols into the air and dust particles into the air. You, you, you've reached another level of hubris, right? You've reached another level of, uh, uh, of just, you know, arrogance to think that you know more and understand more than this natural complex system that has been around for literally hundreds of millions of years and has evolved and changed over time. You, you, we are not God. We cannot mess with these massive, huge, complex systems and, and think that we can affect them or manipulate them to meet our whims and needs, right? We're, we're not that powerful. I find that to be a compelling reaction. And I, I am not one who thinks that we can someday mitigate uh, any climate change by just pumping aerosol in the air any more than I think we can mitigate other environmental damage by doing more intervention. I, I, I do think that environmentalists make a very good point. Although it has some some practical ramifications, but I think environmentalists generally make a very good point when they say the optimum condition is wilderness, and the more we can get back to that in areas that are wild, in areas that uh, are not essentially developed, 
the better off that natural systems are going to be. I, I buy into that. I get that. And, and I think there's a very logical framework there amongst people who have identified natural ecological systems as being very complex, very organic, having their own you know, life to them that is beyond our ability to tinker with and micromanage and achieve kind of top-down managed outcomes. I want to slide over into the area of urbanism for a second as, as, a, as a way stop to where I want to get in this conversation. And I want to talk just briefly about urban renewal. The idea that we would identify certain neighborhoods as blighted, certain neighborhoods as uh, deficient, and would go in with lots of money, move the people out of those neighborhoods, tear those deficient, blighted structures down, and replace them with things that we felt would be better. I think we have pretty much shown and, and, and clearly understood, although there are a number of holdouts, there's a number of holdouts in planning schools around the country, that's for sure. Uh, but I think we've pretty much shown that that kind of thinking is, is not only arrogant and dangerous, but it's just plain wrong, right? A lot of these neighborhoods that we looked at as being blighted, whether they were African-American neighborhoods, whether they were, you know, Chinese neighborhoods, uh, whether they were just, uh, you know, whatever, whatever kind of neighborhood we were that they were that we labeled as, as deficient. What we failed to recognize then, and I think recognize a lot better now, is that there was a very complex uh, system that was at work in those places that we just ignored and destroyed. Not only a complex economic system, but a complex social system, uh, cultural relationships, all kinds of things that were bonded together by the way these places had incrementally grown, that when we went in and dealt with one specific issue, the, the quality of the housing stock, by completely wiping everything out and starting over, that we did serious damage to people, to neighborhoods, to communities, to economic ecosystems that have ramifications still today, right? And we understand now that as planners, this is the absolute wrong way to go about things, right? You you don't instill your top-down value set on these different disparate neighborhoods, right? You, you acknowledge the fact that there is a complexity there. There is a certain level of interdependence of economic exchange, of cultural and social exchange that is going on in these neighborhoods and these places that, you know, we, we necessarily as outsiders can't grasp. And we have to start with a respect for that and an understanding of that and try to uh, deal with the issues that have arisen, uh, not only incrementally, but also with, with an understanding that uh, we don't have all the answers, right? Again, I'm talking about complex systems here and how we choose to view them and understand them and interact with them. And I'm making an argument here that when these complex systems arise 
And and when I when I say complex systems, I'm talking specifically about systems that have many, many, many variables that feed back on each other and interact with each other in ways that can't be modeled, in ways that are unpredictable. Sometimes we have used now the phrase the butterfly effect to denote how seemingly small things will ripple through a complex system and all those feedback loops and have very unpredicted, you know, wide ranging outcomes at the other end. This is sometimes called chaos theory. Uh, Nassim Taleb uh, has written extensively about this. He calls these fourth quadrant kind of systems. I think we all, and particularly if you're listening to this podcast and you've been with us here at Strong Towns for any period of time, I think we have a respect and an understanding for the fact that there are many of these complex systems in the world, whether it's climate or whether it's uh, economic ecosystems within neighborhoods, uh, that while messy, while not always optimum on a day-to-day basis, over time set up a trajectory of stability and, dare I say, of progress. Let me switch now to the topic I want to talk about, which is the economy. Uh, we had a – well, let me, let me go way back um, – I graduated from the University of Minnesota as an undergrad in 1995, and I had spent a large – in my senior year, I had engineering economics, which I just loved. I just sucked up that class. In fact, trivia, um, Chuck Marone got two A's uh, in his time at the University of Minnesota. Um, I got two A's. One of them was in engineering economics. The other one was in an elective comparative philosophy. <laughs> the only two classes I really found interesting as an undergrad. Uh, sorry, University of Minnesota. Um, I was I was totally into the engineering economics. Thought this class was amazing, and and I I spent a good deal of time after that studying markets, and of course. Anybody who has delved into the stock market, one of the first things that you're inundated with is all of the kind of cheap, easy theories on how to make money on the stock market. I I remember one of the early ones that I saw was called the Dogs of the Dow. It was on the Motley Fool website, and, and they had published a book even on this Dogs of the Dow theory. And the idea was that there's 30 companies in the Dow Jones. There are 30 highly respectable companies. They're companies that have long track records of success. They're kind of the blue chip companies. And the idea was that you could take the five companies on that list that had been underperforming, and if you would invest in those five, that historically over time, those have been the five that have performed the highest over the, the next, you know, pre- preceding years. So in other words, you, you look at a year and you say, well, these five Dow stocks didn't do well. So I'm going to invest in, in these five, the dogs of the Dow, the worst of the Dow, because, you know, they generally, statistically, at least looking back since World War II and all the models that we've got, when we've done this, we've seen gains in these stocks that were much higher than what had been experienced uh, by, by, by other stocks that were within the Dow. This was one of those, like, get rich, not quick, but get rich, you know, quicker than uh, some other fool. You kind of found a trick to uh, to do the market. Well, I have to admit, um, I thought this was interesting. 
uh, I didn't really understand complexity the way that I do now. And I didn't have an appreciation for markets the way that I do now. And I thought, well, this is an interesting statistical anomaly. And I, being an engineer, you had this high degree of confidence that you could model anything and you could figure anything out. And if you just had enough data, and boy, we seem to have data going back 50 years that showed that this approach was really good. I'm going to do this. And of course, what happened? I, I remember one of the companies was International Paper. I don't think International Paper is even on the Dow 30 anymore. It's such a dog. It, it just was a horrible company. One of them was Kodak, which, you know, Kodak may have declared bankruptcy. I, I can't even remember. But Kodak was just a disaster. I mean, I just lost a, a gargantuan amount of money on Kodak. Uh, this was a dumb strategy. And it was a dumb strategy because while it fit uh, correlations going backward, uh, it it didn't anticipate the tech boom, uh, the rise of digital cameras, uh, the fact that we were using paper differently. You know, all, all these things that are come out of and emerge out of complex market systems. It didn't anticipate any of those uh, things that you know hadn't happened over the the preceding decades, and. In retrospect, this was an absolutely stupid strategy. Statistically, looking back, brilliant. Uh, but it did not predict the future at all. Why? Because markets are very complex systems. So once I started working as an engineer at my job, uh, I uh, was able to participate in the 401k and I, I started putting money aside. And this was in the late 1990s. This was the whole tech run-up. I remember at my company, we were... Run, it, it, the place was run and is still run. And I'm gonna. I'm not a young guy anymore either. But it, at, back then, I was the youngest guy by more than a decade at this place. It was run by a bunch of old fuddy-duddies, right? And I remember our 401k savings plan had conservative and ultra-conservative and cash as my three choices. <laughs> I could put my funds in the conservative fund, the ultra-conservative fund, or the cash. And so while like the tech fund, uh, which I wasn't allowed to invest, invest my money and was getting 200% re return, like literally over 200% annual returns. My funds were at like 2.3, uh, you know, 0 0.5 and then zero, right? It, it, they were horrible, horrible. And I remember being so angry because yeah, just because you guys are going to retire in a decade, I've got 40 years, you know, let me invest in something that's going to grow a little bit. I remember being really angry, but of course what happened? Uh, you know, coming out of the SNL scandal, coming out of the recession of the of the uh, of the early '90s, uh, we had all this money invested in tech stocks, and we had this huge run up, and we had a what a bubble, right? And ultimately, the bubble burst. I remember I bought Yahoo. I was so proud because I, I had I had researched this. I loved Yahoo as a company. Uh, this is before Google. I, I thought they had it all figured out. I mean, I thought they had the advertising model down. I, I, I thought they were brilliant. And I invested at them at something like $230 a share, $240, some ridiculous sum of money. Of course, it went to seven, right? And I remember just like my gut, just like not wanting to tell my wife, like, oh, this is so embarrassing. This is just horrible. <laughs> uh, but, you know, another lesson in how complex systems uh, have, you know, unpredictable outcomes, right? 
uh, you have a, a bubble and you have the bubble bursting. Uh, of course, what did we do a- as a macro economy after that bubble burst, right? I, I think history uh, – I-, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that there was active policy to keep the economy going. I remember at the time I was working – doing engineering work and planning work, and there was a real concern that some of the high-end housing that was being built after the stock market correction would, would stop being built, Um a lot of the the market here in central Minnesota was driven off of people cashing out some of their stock wealth and buying lakeshore property and building huge houses on the lake with it. And that was kind of the... The, the top dollar coming in. And then, you know, you had the, the tertiary effects from all that. So all the people who were, you know, working on building these luxury houses, they needed to have houses too. So their people had to be hired to build those houses. And, and, you know, they all had to go to school and they all had to shop at Target. And, you know, so it was created this whole, you know, ecosystem of, uh, of economic exchange that was kind of predicated off very wealthy people investing in these lake homes. There was a fear that that would dry up, right? That with the stock market correction, with the bubble, the tech bubble and the bursting of the tech bubble, that all of a sudden there would be less investment in these high-end homes and that that was going to have this hugely negative effect here on the local market. That didn't happen, right? And it didn't happen because what? We we had the housing, what became the housing bubble, right? Between 2001 and 2008, we had this big, big run-up. In fact, it's kind of crazy because in 2001, I read and actually cut out and saved. Uh, this is before. <laughs> it seems so silly now because I, you just put it in Evernote now, right? But back then, I... I photocopied this article and saved it. Uh, it was in 2001 in Forbes magazine, and it said, is housing, uh, uh, you know, is, is there a housing bubble? And it, it, the article went on and talked about how housing was at all-time highs and all this money had gone into housing and housing was, uh, was, was now too highly valued and it was due for a correction. This was 2001. And of course, what happened subsequent to 2001 is that housing went way, 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 way up to stratospheric levels, levels beyond, uh, you know, needing a correction, levels that were massive, massive bubble levels, right? And we look back and we say, well, Federal Reserve policy was too loose. Uh, Congress, you know, creating mandates for the the Fannie and Freddie, uh, lowered borrowing standards. You had the SEC. You had um, all these places, you know, the, the ratings agencies and Moody's uh, getting suckered in with these uh, CDOs, the collateralized debt obligations and all the securitization. You had, you know, the end of Glass-Steagall and the ability to leverage these huge amounts of money and these big deals uh, with housing feeding all this. You, you had all this kind of stuff going on, right, that drove up the housing market. 2007. Really, 2006, but seven things started to kind of slow down, and then they rippled through and actually became the financial crisis that emerged in 2008 with the failure of uh, of, uh, of Lehman Brothers. Ultimately, you had the failure of Bear Stern and the kind of engineered. Uh, it wasn't a bailout, but basically engineered. Um, 
market stabilization mechanisms, essentially, uh, by the by the Fed. Uh, and then you had the actual Lehman uh, failure followed by the massive market interventions that we've had ever since. Zero percent interest rates, the quantitative easing, all that. We then went on this really strange path. And I have to admit, um, if you go back and read the early stuff in Strong Towns, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and a lot of time trying to understand this. Because there was still this like engineer part of me that said, you know, you, you can you can model some of this and you know you, you can plot up if you get enough data, you can plot this up and figure it out and project out of the future and get a sense of what's going to happen. Uh, but there was this kind of growing, I'll call it the Talebian side, the Nassim Taleb side of me that said that that's just crazy. I mean, I've been through this now three, four times. And every time I think I know what's going to happen, I, I have no clue what's going to happen. And you can read the early stuff that I wrote here at Strong Towns and see that I was struggling with this notion because there were a whole lot of people who were making very, very convincing arguments to me that with the way we were conducting our monetary policy, the fact that we were printing trillions of dollars, just making money up out of thin air, uh, that we were going to have runaway inflation. We were going to have massive, massive inflation, of course. I think we've had higher inflation than what has been reported, particularly in sectors that uh, that matter to poor people, right? Food uh, being one. Uh, we have not had the general core inflation that I think I would have thought, many people thought that we were going to have. Um, we also haven't had the growth that people thought we were going to have. Uh, there's been kind of a bewilderment that we've done as much as we have and haven't had. I mean, we, we've got lower unemployment, obviously, than we had six, seven years ago. Uh, but we also have massive amounts of people in the out of the workforce. We have the lowest number of, of people as a percentage of the workforce since before women worked, right? In, in the 1970s, when we had a very low percentage of, of women that were in the workforce, we're, we're at those levels now uh, of workforce participation. Uh, we've had economic growth, but we've had nothing that you would call robust economic growth. And so there's been kind of a perplexity on all sides because the numbers haven't worked out the way anybody's model or anybody's theories have suggested. The one thing that we did ha have happen that is, is has been one of these kind of crazy, crazy things to me is we had a huge stock market run up. We had just huge and, and in the business you know, they'll call it equity inflation. They'll say, you know, asset inflation. You, you've had this big run up in stocks and equities. Uh, the fascinating thing is that it really has been in many ways disconnected from the underlying economy. It's, it's really bizarre to see business stock prices going up when the businesses themselves aren't making that much more money. Uh, when many businesses are struggling and going out of business and, and when the underlying population that these businesses are, are dealing with and serving is, is not thriving, is not doing well in terms of, uh, you know, it, it particularly not, I mean, not in terms of a doubling of asset values, right? 
I mean, you look at the degree of the run-up in the stock market, and you're like, this, this is just crazy. Now, there were a, a number of different like theories for why this was happening, and I'm not going to get into them except just to say that you know, I, I I I buy mostly into the notion that when you print a bunch of money and give it to banks, when you essentially give money to wealthy people. Uh, and you don't have a lot of investments that can be made in terms of, well, we're going to invest in this factory or this business or build this more stuff because the people that you would be selling it to don't have any more money than they had before. Uh, one of the logical things that wealthy people would do with that money would be to buy stocks, especially if they're buying stocks and other people are buying stocks and you get this virtuous feedback loop where the stock prices just go up. I buy it, you buy it. Um, you know, you, you look at the profile of the average investor today and it's much, much different than it was a decade ago, right? A decade ago, there was a lot more ma and pa investors. Those people are, I won't say largely out of the market, but they're, it's a very different profile today than it was a decade ago. You've had this huge, huge run-up in stock prices that came to an end uh, last week. La last week, I was on vacation. My family and I went to uh, Glacier National Park and then went up into Banff in Canada. I, I When I go on vacation, I unplug completely. So I shut off my phone. I did not bring a computer. I did not do any work. I read books and I wrote by hand in a notebook thoughts and ideas that I had. Um, so I, I was completely out of the loop. And when I got back and saw what the stock market had done on Friday, uh, last week, the Friday before I got back, it had a, um, hundreds of points down. Uh, I, I thought, wow, this might be the correction that a lot of people thought were, was coming. Uh, on Monday, you had the market down many, many hundreds of points more, so over 500 points. And on Tuesday, we were down another 300 points. Uh, it's Wednesday night when I'm recording this. I, I think things were up slightly today. I, I don't look at the stock market every day like a horse race. I, I'm not that kind of an investor. But I do think it's fascinating that we're in this cycle where uh, you can see – if you step back and look, you, you see that assets have gone way, way up and now seem to be making what I think would be a, a logical correction. The backdrop for this is what I want to talk about. And I, I want to talk about what comes next. Because we've come to kind of correlate success in our economy with the stock market, right? When the stock market's going up, the economy's going well. When the stock market's going down, the economy's not doing well. There's this, there's this correlation. And, and I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some justification to that. Uh, I don't think there's been a correlation over the last five or six years. Uh, nonetheless, I, I think it's our natural reaction to do it. Uh, certainly, and I think this is the most important part, there seems to be at the Federal Reserve, uh, a notion that there is a reflection one way or the other uh, amongst uh, stock prices and the, uh, the direction that the economy is headed in. And in fact, this week, uh, there have been calls from people such as Paul Krugman, the kind of classic Keynesian uh, apologist, and others of the kind of activist Fed persuasion that not only should the Federal Reserve keep interest rates at zero 
uh, longer than what they were planning to do or, or what they uh, were kind of signaling they were going to do, but actually might want to consider further asset purchases and actually going out, printing more money and using that money to buy treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and even corporate debt. Go back to the climate change thing. And this is the, this is, this is the, the only point I'm trying to make here today. When we look at the complex system of climate, we look at that and we understand that when things start to, to go amiss, right, uh, our reaction shouldn't be, well, let's just do another big, like, heavy-handed intervention. Let's go spray some aerosol in the air because our theories tell us that that, that will correct the problem. The actual right like gut reaction to that is to say, let's stop creating the, the problem in the first place, right? Let's, let's stop emitting the carbon. Let's stop doing the thing that is creating the weirdness that we're then going to have to try to mitigate in the future. When I look at the economy, a system as complex, if not more complex than the climate, a system that has more variables, more feedback loops, more butterfly effects than the climate ever will. It is strange to me, and I think we need to resist the notion that we can, when something goes weird and something goes amiss, that we can step in and have some kind of intervention, some you know single policy or some kind of broad stroke that we're going to do that is going to somehow put this thing right. To me, the logical thing here is to step back and say, how do we stop screwing this thing up in the first place? How do we stop creating this series of bubbles in the first place? Now, when we look at the climate, we can say, okay, as the climate changes, uh, there are a, a lot of negative impacts that we anticipate. You see all the, I see the, the hysterical models of Manhattan underwater and Miami underwater. And okay, I'm, I'm not going to dispute those. I, I, I don't find those personally compelling, but I know a lot of people do. Um, I'm not saying that those are impossible outcomes, but understand they're more propaganda than they are science in, in many ways. Nonetheless, uh, I, you know, I, I, I understand that as the climate changes, uh, that there are going to be real world impacts to people. People are going to have negative impacts. Some people have positive impacts, right? But, but for the, for the large part, we anticipate a lot of negative impacts from the climate changing. Nonetheless, it, it, you know, and also I will add to that. We expect some negative impacts as well from the steps we would have to take to keep that from happening. If, if we, uh, let me just use an extreme example. If we stop burning fossil fuels, there's going to be a bunch of coal miners and a bunch of guys running oil rigs that are going to be out of jobs, right? So we understand that there's economic hardship and that there's individual hardship and trauma with getting to a system that is more stable, is more natural, is more normal, and, 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 and I would say embraces the complexity when it comes to climate. And largely, uh, you know, many of us are, are fine with that, are fine with those costs and those trade-offs. We understand that those trade-offs need to be made. But when it comes to the economy, 
we're often not willing to make those trade-offs, right? We're often not willing to say, okay, we've created an absolute mess here. We've tinkered with this thing. We've intervened in this thing. We've done all these things that has thrown the market off kilter in order to get back to normal equilibrium, something that would be more of a natural complex systems with real feedback loops, uh, that would, that would work and function, uh, some people are going to be damaged by that. Some people are going to be hurt by that. Uh, that repels us. And I think it repels us for a bunch of reasons that I, I get, that I understand. I mean, I, I'm, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for throwing people out on the street and for massive layoffs and massive unemployment. I, I'm not, you know, advocating for people being destitute. But I am advocating for financial systems and markets that make sense. It's very strange to me that we would have, uh, and, and I, I know I'm getting a little bit into the politics of this here. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I, I'm not trying to make this a political podcast. But it, it's very strange to me the dialogue that we have about these two complex systems: the climate and the economy, because on one side of the political spectrum. We deny all complexity of the one system and embrace the complexity of the other. And on the other side of the political spectrum, we deny the complexity of, of, the, of the one system, the opposite one, and we embrace the complexity of the other. And I find that to be a, a very incoherent kind of world, right? Uh, I find that to be a, a, a political world uh, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? Where, where, I, where I'm not able to have rational, thoughtful discussions with people uh, because they hold views that I, I find to be irrational, right? I, I find to be kind of uh, inconsistent. Now, am I being irrational and inconsistent, right? Am, am I being too dogmatic here? Um, I'm sure there's a case to be made that, well, Chuck, uh, when it comes to the climate, we, uh, you know, we can't, we, we uh, can figure these things out and we've got to, you know, put the aerosol in the air and we can do that. But when it comes to the market, uh, you know, I'm laissez-faire or, you know, I'm sure there's many of you are going to say, well, when it comes to the climate, we have to respect the natural system. We have to keep it as natural as possible. We have to intervene as little a bit. But when it comes to the economy, boy, we're, we got some smart people there and they know what they're doing and they can figure it all out. Uh, and we got to have trust in them. I, I, I just don't buy this. I, I, I don't buy it. I find it to be completely, completely incoherent. To me, the essence of a strong town's approach when we get to cities and when we get to natural markets and, and when we get to the climate, really, or the, the natural environment, is to say that we're going to respect complex systems. We're going to recognize that they exist. We are going to be humble in the face of them. We are going to understand that anytime we mess with a complex system, we should do so in very small increments uh, and allow those feedback loops. We, sh we should be very open to the positive and specifically the negative feedback that comes from our interventions. We just have to be more humble, right? I find a lot of genius 
in the traditional development pattern, the way we built cities for thousands and thousands of years. That's not to say that these places were great. That's not to say that these places were perfect. That's not to say that, you know, I would want to go back to Brainerd, my hometown here in, in 1910, because I thought it was better than, than it is today. I, I don't necessarily think that it would be better. Uh, but what it is, is it, it was stronger. It was more resilient. It was more natural. Uh, it was more like that climate before it had been uh, filled full of carbon, right? It's more like that economy uh, before we thought we could lower interest rates and create bubbles and tinker with it and make everything work right. I think that those complex systems, while they give us painful feedback at times, particularly when they're systems that involve humanity, have a natural progression that we can follow for improvement, have a natural incremental uh, uh, path that we can use to make things better. But we've got to have the humility to actually go about it in the right way. To me, th- that's like the, 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 the strong town's you know, core. Uh, we, we often don't come across here as being very humble because we uh, point out a, a lot of the hubris of everybody else. Uh, but at the end of the day, a, a lot of what we're proposing uh, is comes from a fundamental humility in the face of these complex systems. Uh, I, I think that's something we all have to have. And I would just urge all of you to to share that humility and to approach these complex problems that you see in your communities uh, with that level of humility. Um, I think we have to talk to people about the economy. I think we have to talk to people about the climate. And I think we need to talk to people about our neighborhoods uh, with an understanding that these are very, very complex systems and we don't know as much as we think we know. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Talk to you again soon. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21.